Matthew 6, we begin in verse 19. This is Christ speaking. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Amen, and we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the beginning portion of verse 20, where the Lord says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. An interesting concept, isn't it? Since the dawn of creation, men have always been in pursuit of treasures of one kind or another. I find it interesting that even before the fall of man, we find mention made way back in Genesis chapter 2, of a land region called Havilah. And the only thing we're told about this land region is that there was much gold there. 
and that the gold was good. It would seem that in the very course of creation, from the outset of it, the Lord saw fit to plant precious metals in the earth in order that those precious metals might be sought out by men. And men have been seeking treasure ever since. You probably heard, especially those of you that are homeschooled, I'd be shocked if you had no knowledge of the California gold rush. Took place back in 1848. Some 300,000 men, women, and children from all over the world came to California, often under great hardship in pursuit of gold. Some struck it rich, most did not. Gold, of course, is not the only treasure that men pursue. Investors today seek their riches through any number of commodities or through currency exchanges. There are those who know how to play the markets in such a way that they can make money even when a particular stock goes down in its value. They strike it rich, not by the increased value of a stock, but by being able to accurately predict which direction a particular stock will take. And then there's the treasure hunters that come closer to my level of prosperity. You've probably heard the expression that one man's trinket is another man's treasure. This is the rationale behind yard sales. A simple sign in your yard or an ad in the paper or a notice online will draw treasure hunters from all over southeast Indianapolis and beyond. Now in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, we see how Christ draws from this age-old practice of antiquity, this practice of hunting treasure, in order to exhort the subjects of the kingdom of heaven to pursue a kind of treasure that is far better than any treasure that you can gain in this world. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, he says in verse 19. And then by way of contrast, he exhorts his followers positively to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. And to show the importance of his exhortation, Christ makes a striking statement in verse 21 when he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I call the statement striking because it pierces with convicting power the misplaced affections even of many professing Christians. In the previous section to the Sermon on the Mount, Christ was going to great lengths to exhort his followers to steer clear of practicing their religion in order to gain the praise of men. In this section of the sermon, he emphasizes the importance of steering clear from worldliness. In the verses we're considering this morning, he's exhorting his followers to break away from the love of the world. 
In the next section, which will encompass the rest of chapter 6, he exhorts his followers to avoid the anxiety of the world with all its cares and concerns. We are not to love the world, nor are we to be unduly concerned with the worries of the world. It would be a mistake, of course, for a preacher to say that any one section of the Sermon on the Mount bears greater importance than another section. The entire sermon is obviously important. Having said that, however, I can't escape the sad fact that the thing that is killing the testimony of many Christians today and the thing that nullifies the effectiveness of many churches today and many ministries today is this haunting problem of worldliness. I can still remember, this is quite some time ago, it was when we hosted a week of prayer here, maybe the first time we had hosted the week of prayer, Dr. Cairns spoke from this pulpit and very forcibly made this point. He said, in effect, that it is not the reprehensible moral climate that's killing the church. It's not the rise of sodomy, nor is it the ascendancy of apostasy, nor is it the discouraging developments in the realm of politics, Christ's kingdom, you see, is not dependent upon politics, nor does a climate of immorality necessarily pose a threat to the church. The greatest danger the church faces today is its love for the world. And I might go a step further to suggest that the greatest danger that many families face, many Christian families face, and the greatest danger to many marriages among Christians can be traced to this love of the world. Now, I've said on a number of occasions, and I, I continue to affirm it, I think it holds as true today, true for all of us, true for young people especially, that the greatest challenge Christians face in our day and age is the challenge of how to live in the world without being of the world. There is a legitimate use of many things in the world. And when the Lord Jesus says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, I don't believe that he is absolutely prohibiting such things as preparing for retirement or saving for your children's college education, etc. It is not the accumulation of wealth so much as it is the Christian's attitude toward that wealth or his attitude toward the things of the world that is brought under consideration by our Lord's words. You may recall when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said to him in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And doesn't Paul's statement demonstrate the potential danger of worldliness? It is the love of money while coveted after that takes on an importance and a priority that eventually can lead to erring from the faith. 
important matters of faith lose their importance when they're made subordinate to the things of the world. And note also from the text that it's not the accumulation of money that is the root of all evil, but the love of money. It's not your accumulated goods, therefore, so much as your attitude toward your accumulated goods. <coughs> that Christ is addressing in this sermon. And the way Christ confronts the problem is by giving a wholesome antidote to the problem. How is worldliness to be overcome or avoided? Well, Christ gives both a negative and a positive exhortation. I'm going to focus on the positive exhortation this morning. I believe this is the key to this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the negative side of the exhortation again. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, he says in verse 19. So here's something you are not to do. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth. And that's why I say this is the negative side of the exhortation. And then comes the positive side. Listen to it again from verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And in analyzing the positive side of this twofold exhortation this morning, I want to draw your attention to what is necessary or the requirements for laying up treasures in heaven. The requirements for laying up treasures in heaven. If we would heed our Lord's exhortation this morning, then there are certain judgments, value judgments, that we must make. And there are competing allegiances in those value judgments. There is an allegiance that must be overcome, and there is a proper spirituality that must be established and maintained. Let's look at these things then as they're revealed in our text. Think with me first of all that if we would meet the requirements for laying up treasures in heaven, one, we must establish right values. We must establish right values. And we see in verses 19 and 20 the case the Lord Jesus makes for establishing right values. In these verses, he presents to us two sets of values that stand in stark contrast to each other. He gives us the world's values in verse 19, and he gives us heaven's values in verse 20. Look at the problem, then, that is associated with the world's values in verse 19. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Christ is pointing out here that the treasures of the world are corruptible. Corruptible and vulnerable. Indeed, I find it striking that silver and gold are specified by Peter as being corruptible things. When he writes in 1 Peter 1.18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with 
the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Our Lord's words make it apparent at once that for something to have value, it ought to have durability. And nothing in this world is absolutely durable. Everything in this world is temporal. And everything in this world one day will go up in smoke, if you will. So we're told in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? You begin to see the futility of placing too high a value on things that are destined to be burned or dissolved. And yet this is what so many that name the name of Christ do. They can't get beyond what the carnal eye sees. They don't have adequate faith to enable them to see invisible things. The ones who live with eternity's values in view are often viewed by the world as being foolish. I'm reminded of a famous missionary from England from the 1800s. Perhaps you've heard of him. I hope you homeschoolers have. A man by the name of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was a rich Englishman who was a famous cricket player in England. Now, we don't know what cricket playing even is, but uh, it's a highly popular sport over there. And uh, they have their star athletes, and C.T. Studd was one of these star athletes, a famous cricket player in England. His athletic skill gained for him great wealth and status. But when the Lord saved him, he left it all, in order to take the gospel to China, and then India, and eventually to Africa. And while he was a missionary in Africa, his inheritance came due to him, and fearing lest such an inheritance would tempt him to leave off walking by faith, he donated his entire inheritance to other Christian works most of it to Moody Bible Institute. The world no doubt looked upon C.T. Studd with utter astonishment. I suppose some admired what they took to be such a great sacrifice. I love the simple but sublime saying of C.T. Studd that best expressed his philosophy of life. His motto was, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. I think it would be fair to say that C.T. Studd didn't consider himself to be sacrificial at all. He viewed himself rather as being one who was willing to pay his debt of love to Christ by his service to Christ. 
Another way to view him would be to see him as one who endeavored to lay up treasures in heaven. And this leads to another sub-point I need to make under this heading. What are we even talking about when we say treasures in heaven? We have no problem comprehending the treasures of the world, but what do we know of treasures in heaven? We can certainly draw the application that the souls of men and women have the potential for being treasures in heaven. Lost souls. Souls for whom Christ died. Certainly have to rank very high on the list of treasures in heaven. I'll I'll never forget when I was in seminary down at, uh, uh, in the theological hall, Dr. John Douglas was over. He was uh, one of our ministers, very scholarly minister from Northern Ireland. He was there teaching us courses in English Bible, and I don't know what this was even in connection with, but I never forgot what he said when he observed in a seminary course that children are the only things we possess in this world that we are able, in a sense, to bring with us to heaven. Everything else is left behind. Your houses, your cars, your bank accounts, your family heirlooms. You can't bring any of those things with you. But your children can come. Your children can follow you. And if you can reach with the gospel, that man or that woman you work with, or that neighbor that you greet along the way, then they can come. The souls of men, in other words, makes up a large portion of our treasures in heaven. Indeed, the souls of men make up Christ's inheritance. We are viewed as his treasure. And when you think about such a truth, and then read again verse 21, in the light of such a truth, then you can't help but be moved to reverence and awe. Look at verse 21 again, where Christ says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if the souls of men make up Christ's treasure, then it holds true that Christ's heart is found with us. We are the objects of his loyalty and affection. He prizes us very highly, as is evident by the great price he was willing to pay for us, even the price of his own blood. You are very valuable to him, dear believer. I know that seems incredible at times. I'm valuable to Christ me in all my weakness, with all my failings, with all my stumblings, my backslidings, my worldliness. I'm valuable to Christ. Well, just look at the price he paid for you. And you can't help but conclude, yes, you are very valuable to Christ. His heart is where his treasure is, and his heart is with his people. And of course, he is viewed, or he should be viewed, as our treasure. 
And when you consider how he's shown his heart toward us, then it makes a compelling argument for us to give our hearts to him. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I wonder this morning, where is your heart? I wonder how diligently you labor to become better acquainted with him. And I wonder how diligently you pray and watch and labor to contribute to his treasury by endeavoring to labor for souls. This is how we lay up treasure in heaven. We strive to know Christ more and we labor for souls and for the extension of his kingdom. We labor in our prayers even for souls. And those prayers are held in heaven. And they're known in heaven. The first requirement then for laying up treasures in heaven is that we establish right values. May God help us to live with eternity's values in view. Consider with me next that if we would meet the requirements for laying up treasure in heaven, we must overcome competing allegiances. We must align ourselves with the right things, in other words. Overcome Competing allegiances. I said in my introduction that there are competing allegiances when it comes to our treasures. Would you note what Christ says in verse 24? No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now that word mammon, is a word that refers to riches, especially when the term is personified. If you think of riches personified, the term mammon comes into play. Mammon is seen, therefore, as a master in this verse. No man can serve two masters. One of the masters is mammon or the riches of this world. The term conveys a certain irony to us. Those that think that the world's riches will put them on top of the world in such a way that they have all that their hearts could wish and answer to no one fail to consider that they are in fact slaves and not only slaves but slaves to a stern taskmaster. Perhaps the most striking illustration of this is found in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes where we find the wisest and the richest, the wealthiest king in history, the history of Israel, and we find him really as a slave to his circumstances and his possessions. Circumstances that place the world at his disposal and yet bring no satisfaction. The key phrase and the key word in that book of Ecclesiastes is vanity. Vanity and vexation of spirit is the repeated refrain to all of King Solomon's worldly wealth. It doesn't satisfy and he becomes a slave to it. The thing I want you to see from the Lord's words, however, is that there's no room for divided allegiance. 
Of all the statements of Christ that meet resistance, I fear that verse 24 draws the greatest resistance from the very ones that profess to follow Christ. No man can serve two masters, Christ says. And yet this is exactly the way many Christians think. I can have Christ and I can have the world too. I know of no better way to describe many, many modern-day Christians than by such a statement. I can have the world, and I can have Christ. And I dare say that the largest churches and the fastest-growing churches in America today are the ones that know how to implement this kind of rationale. The world loves and arguably is addicted to entertainment. Well, the church can accommodate that. The world has its own fashions and styles, which in large measure have come to us through the rebellious and immoral and immodest and vice-craving cultures of the 60s and the 70s. And the church can accommodate that. The thing that must be noted from the words of Christ, however, is that there is no room for divided allegiance between the world and Christ. Despite the mindset that reasons that the Christians can have both, Christ makes it clear that the love of the world precludes the love of Christ. You can't love both. And love for Christ precludes love for the world. You can't have both. And when you notice the force of Christ's words, he is not allowing for mere indifference to one thing or the other. The truth is that if you love the world, you are despising Christ. You're not merely being cold and indifferent toward Christ. And if you would love Christ and in turn lay up treasures in heaven, then you must view the world not with mere indifference. You must despise the world. Now that shouldn't be too terribly difficult for the Christian if he would only realize that the world is sinful, that the world lives in rebellion against God. It was the mindset of the world that nailed Christ to a cross. Worldliness, you see, competes with God for sovereign dominion. And the Christian or the church that is infected with the spirit of worldliness does not look to serve God. You could say it looks rather for God to serve him. Very often Christians who become infected with such a spirit of worldliness are disappointed with God. They don't understand why God doesn't cater to them more. Why some may have things that they don't have and think they should. There are certain things they desire and they seek God for those desires, but they never seem to have their prayers answered. James describes them very bluntly in his epistle. Listen to the words of James 4, verses 3 and 4. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. 
That's rather blunt, isn't it? And rather strong. James as being as blunt as Christ in our text. It may well be that James recalled these words from Christ when he penned the words in that text in James chapter 4. The point needs to be emphasized, therefore, that if we, we would lay up treasures in heaven, if we would labor for more of Christ and for more of the advancement of his kingdom and for the salvation of immortal souls, we must overcome divided allegiance. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood this morning. This is not to say that we become monks by closing out the world and shutting ourselves into our own little monasteries. It is to say that the things we use in this world must be viewed as means through which we serve Christ. So everything he gives me can have a legitimate use to that end. I'm not saying you have to become a hermit. I am saying you have to have the right allegiance and see the things in this world not as an end in themselves, but as a means to an end. We either use the thing that God gives us to serve him, or we strive for the things of the world under the misconception that Christ should serve us. We must overcome divided allegiances by giving heed to the exhortation of John in his first epistle, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And then John goes on to let us know what he means by that term world when he continues, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. And would you note in those verses I just cited the emphasis on lust. Lust can be defined as the inordinate affection for something. It's a desire, in other words, that becomes dominating. It might be a legitimate desire for something that is legitimate. When it gains your heart, when it dominates your soul, then it becomes a lust. May Christ himself help us to see the true nature of the world. May he help us to see that even the legitimate things of the world must become a means for serving and worshiping him. And as we become increasingly aware of the allegiance that Christ has shown to us by his atoning death, may we be enabled by the power of his grace to put away any and every competing allegiance to our affection and devotion to him. There remains one more thing for us to consider in this subject this morning. If we would meet the requirements for laying up treasures in heaven, then we must not only establish the right values and overcome competing allegiances, but finally, we must maintain healthy eyesight. That seems kind of strange, doesn't it? But you'll see what I mean 
from the words of our text. In terms of how to, when it comes to laying up treasures in heaven, perhaps the most important key is found here. Notice what Christ says in verses 22 and 23. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? We see in these verses yet another contrast, this time between an eye that lets in light and an evil eye that is full of darkness. You might say that the contrast here is between spiritual sight and carnal sight. You may recall the illustration we find of spiritual sight being granted to those disciples on the Emmaus Road when the risen Christ walked beside them. I love that section in Luke chapter 24. We read in that chapter in verse 31, And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. You recall the narrative, Christ came up right alongside of them. For quite some time, they didn't recognize him, thought him to be a stranger, and kind of an unusual stranger at that. You don't know anything about all the news, all the buzz that's going on about Jesus of Nazareth. We had hoped that it would have been him that brought redemption to Israel. But eventually, their eyes were opened, and they recognized Christ and then he vanished out of their sight. And in the very next verse, we have the conversation between them, the Emmaus Road disciples, when they say, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us along the way and while he opened to us the Scriptures? Their spiritual sight. They gained their spiritual sight when the Scriptures were opened to them. What a vivid example of the eye being single and letting in the right kind of light. Christ is that light, and he is the one we should strive to see when we spend time in his word. The right side of Christ with the eye of the heart will inevitably lead to increased devotion toward him as well as wholehearted allegiance to him. The spiritual sight is what brings the things of God from the realm of academic theory to the realm of reality. And let's face it, it's when the things of God seem to be more theory than reality that we become vulnerable to the luring power of the flesh and to the power of the world. It's when our spiritual vision becomes dim that the rationale becomes prevalent that we can serve two masters, Christ and mammon. This is why Paul prays for the saints at Ephesus, and I refer to this prayer often, and you should read this prayer and utilize it often. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, that the Ephesians Christians 
might be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding, or perhaps more literally, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What does that prayer amount to but uh, a prayer for spiritual illumination and a prayer that the Christian life might be lived in resurrection power. This is a prayer for theory to be made reality, and this is why I find such a prayer so compelling and essential for our lives and for our church. So much of Christianity today, you know, is nothing but theory. And I might add here that Presbyterians are rather famous on that score. Oh, where do you want to go find top-notch academics? Go to the Presbyterians. And yet you can have a wealth of knowledge, and it's all academic, and it's all theoretical. We give lip service to being in a spiritual relationship with Christ, but oh, how distant that relationship seems in the lives of so many that profess to follow Christ. We need the eyes of our hearts opened, folks. So that the things that we have in our head, and I'm not now despising accumulating knowledge at all, but the things that we store in our heads need to reach our hearts. How does that happen? By reading yet another theological book? Now what happens as the Holy Spirit takes the things we know in our head from God's word and brings them home to our heart so that we sense the reality of them and not just the theory or the academics of them. I believe that to a large degree, this is what accounts for a void being filled with worldliness in the lives of Christians. They don't have that illumination. There's little or no light that actually reaches the heart to illuminate it. And so the people of God attempt to live on artificial light, which in reality is darkness according to Christ. Great darkness, he calls it, in verse 23. We must therefore make it a habit in our lives to maintain healthy eyesight. My eyesight, I think you take my meaning now, spiritual sight. And the way this is accomplished is to seek it in prayer, the way Paul sought it in prayer for the Christians at Ephesus. And then we must spend time in the Word of God, because it will be while we're in the Word of God that we'll behold Christ and enter into fellowship with Christ and come to know and appreciate all the more the greatness of the love and loyalty and allegiance of Christ to our souls. That requires time. It requires at times an adjustment to our priorities. This requires A heart for Christ. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So I wonder this morning as we bring this time to a close, 
Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? What is it that has the strongest hold of your heart? Are you laying up treasures upon earth? Treasures that decay, treasures that are temporal, treasures that are destined to be dissolved? You ever seen a bonfire where a large pile of wood and rubble is set on fire and that fire gives off heat and light for several hours into the night and the next morning you come and you look at that pile, that large pile of wood and rubble amounts to a reduced pile of smoldering ash. Why would anyone who names the name of Christ devote himself or herself to collecting rubble that will eventually be reduced to smoldering ash? Especially, why would anyone who names the name of Christ collect rubbish for burning when something more durable can be sought? Treasures in heaven are not subject to decay and corruption. Treasures in heaven are durable for all eternity. Treasures in heaven will never lose their value. Isn't it time that we examined our hearts then to see where our treasures are really found Oh, may the Spirit of God conduct such heart searches that we, in turn, may see ourselves for what we are and make whatever adjustments we need to make so that our loyalty and allegiance are wholly devoted to Christ and we begin to lay up treasures in heaven. In order to gain our hearts, Christ has truly shown us His heart, a heart of love, that would lead him to bleed and die for us. Oh, may his heart of love melt our hearts into greater loyalty and devotion and submission to him. Let's close then in prayer. Oh, Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this time to a close, we pray that Christ would indeed capture our hearts. We cannot deny, O oh Lord, that it is so easy to be governed by what the carnal eye sees instead of the unseen realities of heaven. But we ask, O oh Lord, that Thou wilt indeed give us that eye salve that You prescribed to the church of Laodicea that we may see things from the right perspective. We're not asking, O oh Lord, for greater resolve to simply deny ourselves of things in this world which have legitimate uses. But Lord, we are praying that we won't be dominated by those things. We are praying, dear Lord, that with thy help, we will see things with eternity's values in view. So hear our prayers, Lord, and take our thanks and give us the needed grace to search our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.